This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lesbian Your Ears, the radio show and podcast that takes a look at new movies in theaters and elsewhere and compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today is going to be a little off the cuff because we're still a little film fest goofy from having uh, attended uh, here in Halifax, uh, Finn Atlantic International Film Festival. And Karsten has been to the Toronto International Film Festival, a.k.a. TIFF. And we'll be talking about both of those events and the movies therein right after this. So here on Lensmere Ears, we are, as you have said, Stephen, sort of rambling through the movies that we have seen and the movies that we are looking forward to see at TIFF. Uh, TIFF, I was spent uh, more than a week there last week, just nice. got back Saturday. Jealous. And had a blast uh, <laughs> because I was there, actually had a press pass, so I could go to see press and industry screenings as well as public screenings. Um, and now, of course, we're right in the middle of Finn, the Atlantic International Film Festival, and already seen a few films there. So what we're going to do on this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, I'm going to talk about some of the movies I saw at TIFF, you're going to talk about some of the movies I haven't seen yet at the local film festival. And then we're going to talk about films we've both seen. Um, and then we'll see what time's left. And we'll just, you know, we'll we'll talk. We're just going to talk movies, which is what we <laughs> yes. love to do. But, but usually we're a little more structured. And, and this week, uh, because we're in the middle of it, and uh, I've just come, I'm, I'm wearing a tie. I don't know if you can hear that uh, <laughs> through your uh, earbuds or through your speakers. But uh, I've just been covering the Queen's Memorial at All Saints Cathedral. So... Uh, I'm I'm in a kind of a weird headspace, so it's going to be an interesting show for sure. Yeah, we're this is Monday, of course, so yes, we're right in the middle of the film festival here. Uh, TIFF wrapped up on Sunday, and uh, yeah, and I saw most of TIFF, and I'm going to see well, most we're going to see most of the local festival Finn, uh, which is. Is it still Finn or is it Atlantic International Film Festival? It feels like the titles are shifting. <laughs> I feel a like we bit. might be in transition. <laughs> anyway, so let me tell you about a few of the films I saw at TIFF that uh, I guess aren't here. Some of them I saw and are here. They are playing here as well. But uh, one of my favorite films at TIFF was Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. This is the sequel to Knives Out, the Ryan Johnson film from a couple of years ago, 2019. It was an unalloyed. A, tr- a treasure that movie. I really enjoyed it, bringing back kind of an Agatha Christie mystery vein to the mainstream. And that's not to say that Kenneth Branagh hasn't been doing the same thing, but let's face it, Knives Out is a lot more fun yes. than the Kenneth Branagh Agatha Christie movies. Um, so this is a sequel. It's a bigger movie, I would say. It's got a bigger cast. It's kind of a little bit trashier, a lot more pop culture conscious, but very, very clever. And it brings back gentleman detective Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig, uh, and he joins a group of hyper-wealthy disruptors, sort of Elon Musk billionaire, played by Edward Norton. And they all have a reason to want him dead, because he's just an ass. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and aside from a few flashbacks, all of this uh, action takes place in this Greek island, this palatial Greek island, uh, and it's, uh, I don't really want to say too much else about it, except it is 
an absolute blast. Super entertaining, super convoluted, great plot. Um, it, it has a reference to Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, which I loved. <laughs> um, and funnily enough, not the only reference to no. Magnolia we've seen recently. In Broker, we saw a reference. So so it's funny how uh, he's creeping back into to movies lately. Um, yeah, and so... Um, it's it's got a lot of cameos. It's uh, it'll it's just it's just a hugely entertaining audience movie. I was so glad to see it in a room full of people, and I really hope it gets a cinematic release. It is a Netflix movie. It's expected Ooh. to arrive just before Christmas, but uh, I really hope that it gets some even a limited time in cinemas because it's a total joy. Yeah, that would be nice. It, it's uh, we haven't had a good track record with uh, Netflix uh, things getting on the big screen, and so many of those films. I did want to see in a theater. I mean, The Irishman obviously is one of them, um, you know, which is a, a painful point for a lot of people because there was almost a screening uh, of it here before it got yanked at the last minute. And, and um, you know, I would have liked to have seen Roma on well, a big screen. Roma played at oh, did, Carbonark. Did it play? Yeah. Okay, you guys Carbonark. did get a hold of it. We okay. did get a hold of it. But you're right. That is one of the few that has has managed to make it to the big screen when it comes to Netflix and their and their their stock. So yeah, fingers crossed for that. I really hope people do get to see it because it's a it's a great audience movie. Um, so another film I saw was the People's Choice Award winner for 2022, The Fablemans, directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, Famously, the last few People's Choice Awards film winners uh, that are voted by the audiences at TIFF have gone on to win Academy Awards, frequently Best Picture. So clearly they're setting up the Fablemans to be that. And, you know, along with last year's Belfast, the Ken Brownell picture, and Sam Mendes's Empire of Light, which was also at TIFF, and I also saw, we're definitely seeing a wave of senior filmmakers mining their childhoods for feature material. Um, I really like The Fablemans. It is a bit too long, and it is very sentimental, but it's funny. It's one of those movies where I was like, eh, about it at first, but then it stayed with me since in the days since. It it does tell the story of young Spielberg and how he became interested in film and how much he pursued that passion. Meanwhile, he's also sort of telling the story of his parents' uh, marriage dissolving. Um, Michelle Williams, uh, Seth Rogen are in it. Um, Paul Dano, these are great actors, and, and he, he does a great job with them. You know, it's 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 a story of a Jewish family coming apart, and uh, but it's not it's not... You know, it's sad in places, but it's actually lovely and full of life. Uh, and I especially like the second half of the film when Spielberg's character is in high school and it becomes kind of a teen movie. It, it, it captures a little more of that West Side Story energy in the second half. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you know, obviously West Side Story, I was, you know, way more fond of it than I thought I was going to be. And, of course, uh, he's working again with Tony Kushner, who, you know, wrote the screenplay for West Side Story and is also worked on two of his better latter-day films, Lincoln and Munich. Uh, so it seems like they're just a great uh, a great creative team, uh, Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg. And uh, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why they, they click so well, but it seems like uh, uh, you know this is their fourth collaboration and uh, everything I'm hearing about it you know, makes me think that uh, hopefully they continue to work together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think of the film, Stephen, because I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, yeah, maybe we can do more of a Spielberg-y kind of show yeah. when, uh, closer to uh, 
when it comes out in November. Yeah, for sure. And it does definitely relate to, you see echoes of Close Encounters and E.T. and that sort of suburban milieu that he was so well known for in the beginning of his career. Uh, and there's a monkey. So immediately I thought of <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, the, the, there's a yeah. great, uh, I mean, I don't know how far into, I mean, obviously it's a fictionalized version of his you know, childhood, young adulthood, but there's a great uh, promotional film that somebody dug up uh, on YouTube right now of, of Spielberg uh, when he was doing, before he'd even made Duel, his first kind of feature, even though it was a TV movie, it did show up in theaters uh, afterwards, but uh, there's a, a there's a featurette of him making his first, uh, or not his first, but one of his early TV movie productions that he did, you know, one of the many uh, TV things that he did before he uh, got into the feature films and, and it, you know, you, but you get to see him kind of at work early on and you see that energy um, that would show up, on, you know, on Jaws and, and so on, um, not uh, not too long down the road. And I, I recommend checking that out. Mm, okay, very good. I will keep that in mind. A um, couple other movies I want to mention. I saw it, Tiff, uh, The Whale, directed by Darren Aronofsky. It's based on a play, and it's a story of a man who is uh, sort of a shut-in. He's living with morbid obesity. He's facing cardiac arrest and refusing help from anybody. He's played by Brendan Fraser, who is an actor we have not seen in the limelight for many years, uh, and he is amazing in this. He's gained a lot of weight, but he's also wearing like a, a very convincing, what they call a fat suit, I guess. Um, and it's about his relationship with his estranged daughter, played by Sadie Sink of Stranger Things fame. It is a remarkable performance. It's hard not to think of The Wrestler, Aronofsky's film, with uh, which gave you know Mickey Rourke, who was also a faded star, a second chance in Hollywood. Um, this is worth it for the performances, I would say. I, you know, it is very stage bound. It's basically a single location story, which is very much feels like its its theatrical roots are are showing. Um, but uh, I was pretty moved by it. I will be I will be interested in hearing what some you know disability activists have to say about the film. The way it you know it uses somebody who refuses to get help and uses food as their their sort of uh, you know self destructive method of choice. But uh, but I thought it was strong and uh, and I think I think you know it's just um, Frazier is going to get nominated for sure for this role. Yeah, I feel like the most recent thing we've seen him in is No Sudden Move, the right. um, the um, Steven Soderbergh kind of crime picture. Yeah, we and, talked about that. Sure. Yeah, we did, and uh, and he was great in that. He was playing a kind of a neat almost kind of villainous role in that. And he was, uh, you know, he had bulked up considerably. I don't know if he was getting ready to do the whale at that point, but uh, it was not the Brendan Fraser we were used to seeing, And but he was terrific in the film and he definitely had a presence. And, uh, you know, I, I'll be curious to see this and see how it kind of pushes limits in the way that Aronofsky likes to. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you know, is it going to be as out there as mother or is, or is it going to be more like the wrestler as you say more sort of down to earth straightforward telling of this uh, this man's dilemma I'd say it's probably somewhere in between okay um, it definitely I think Aronofsky has notes of horror in some of his stories and there's definitely that here he does not he, he dares you to look away you know in his in his uh, intensity um, now the other film I want to mention is The Banshees of Inishirin, written and directed by Martin McDonough and it reunites his, uh, his cast from In Bruges which uh, is a film a lot of people think of, I think, is maybe his best work. Um, Colin Farrell and uh, Brendan Gleeson as lifelong pals on a small island up west of, of Ireland who uh, don't suddenly don't start getting along. Like uh, uh, Colm Doherty, uh, Gleeson's character, decides that he, he doesn't like 
Padrek anymore. That's the feral character. <laughs> and he just and, – and, and the ripples through the community of this decision uh, and what happens. Surprisingly violent. Um, you know, uh, it's not uh, – it, it, it's surprisingly funny. It's got that dry wit and humor that you'd expect. Um, I like the movie quite a lot. Uh, it's – I don't. I don't know that I enjoyed it as much as as in Bruges, which I still think is his his greatest <laughs> work. But uh, but yeah, definitely fans of of his work will want to see this. Yeah, it's funny. I, I'm trying to. I've watched the trailer. That's all I've seen, and uh, I'm I'm trying to think of where the violence comes in. But I, you know, and then as I say that, the trailer's playing in the background, and I can see Colin Farrell punching people and him getting punched. So I guess that's, it's a lot of fisticuff type violence that we're talking about. Not, well, there is other, there are other okay. things, but I won't, I won't spoil no, it. No, no, don't spoil it. But yeah. I, it's funny, like uh, well, last week we talked about a film by um, Martin's brother, um, John Michael McDonough, which is um, The Forgiven. So now we've got, it, it's, it's nice to see the two brothers are keeping busy. And, yeah, um, making interesting work for sure. And obviously I'm a sucker for any film set in Ireland as, as a descendant of the old sod. And, and uh, I've been to some of the locations uh, where they filmed the, uh, the Banshees of Inish Aran, uh, primarily Inishmore Island, the Aran Island uh, in Galway Bay. And I can recognize places I've been just from the trailer. And <laughs> You're going to love this. So I can't, you know, it was such an amazing, magical place to visit. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing it on the big screen. I might get a little misty-eyed at the mm. whole thing. You know, and then the, the presence of the donkeys, um, you know, like the seeing the donkeys and going for a donkey cart ride when I was there, I feel like I probably was like that donkey's grandfather probably took me around the island and we saw all these great historic uh, locations. But but uh, the, yeah, I mean, the chemistry between these two is obviously, you know, we've, we've seen it before in, in, in Bruges and, and uh, you know, Brendan Gleeson is always watchable and I really cannot look, uh, cannot wait to look to, uh, to see this. Yeah, I'm not sure when it's expected. Um, I think in October. Yeah, IMDb says October 21st, so not too far off, just like okay. a month, month away and it'll be in theaters and we'll probably get a Get a screening of it here. It's it's a Fox Searchlight or Searchlight. I guess it, they dropped the Fox mm. part of it now that it's Disney owned. But I, I have a feeling that it will show up here uh, at Park Lane at the very least. Yeah. So that that uh, there are others that I saw. We'll get to that. But um, you want to talk, Stephen, about some of the films you've seen now uh, here at uh, the Finn Atlantic International Film Festival. Sure. Well, let's see. Um, Let's start with uh, the film that uh, wasn't the opening night film, which was Clement Virgo's brother, which I didn't have a chance to see, um, about the the sons of uh, um, Jamaican immigrants in Toronto and getting involved in the, the hip-hop scene in its nascent days in Toronto. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Of course, we've seen Clement's work before, and he's made two features in Nova Scotia as well, so definitely a, a filmmaker that's always worth keeping an eye on. But um, on the uh, the second night of film on Friday night, I saw uh, Bernie Langell wants to know what happened to Bernie Langell, which is an intriguing title. And uh, it was also uh, previously a, a short film, uh, which has been expanded here by Jackie Torrens, the director, in uh, into feature length. And it's, it's a documentary about um, a, a man whose father died under mysterious circumstances, or at least that's what everyone seems to think, uh, at uh, CFB Gagetown in New Brunswick in 1968, I believe. And, you know, he just, it, it happened about 15 years before he was born. He never knew his grandfather. And he grows up uh, hearing all these different and conflicting tales about his grandfather and what he was like and what happened to him. And, uh, and some of the conspiracy theories start to kind of get mixed in. Like, did he stumble upon the Agent Orange 
uh, experiments that were happening at Gagetown in the 60s, you know, during the Vietnam War. And was he, you know, was he killed because of what he knew? And, you know, basically uh, all, they, all they know is he fell down a flight of stairs and his blood was found at the bottom of the basin stairs. And then he woke up in bed um, in a pool of his own blood and was rushed to hospital. And then another string of strange occurrences happened after that, including uh, he, when he finally gets airlifted to Shearwater in Halifax to go to the, uh, I guess, the VG hospital to get operated on because of his uh, brain trauma, um, his ambulance gets hit by a train. And it's, it's just this kind of one thing after another. But the amazing thing about it is it's all told, or not all told, but but the past is recreated through these amazing miniatures. So it's like miniature, like mannequin versions of the the people in uh, in Langell's family and the people that he's talking about, uh, and miniature recreations of the homes in Gagetown and the operating room, and even the scene where the train hits the ambulance is done with the, with these um, you know lovingly crafted intricate miniatures, uh, as well as Bernie's own narration and and interview footage as he talks to members of his family and and experts in the field of forensics and psychology and so on as he tries to get to the heart of of, of what went down uh, with his grandfather's death and and also the results of what it did to his family uh, this kind of trauma which he thought he had sidestepped uh, where he realizes well no it did affect him because it affected his father who wouldn't be interviewed for the film but um, you know that growing up without a, a dad at, at an early age really did have um, these lingering effects on the family members that uh, he sort of gets to know on a deeper level oh. over the course of the film and it, it's it's a fascinating watch it's it's a feature length documentary it'll be uh, it'll be at the Lunenburg Doc Fest actually which starts up uh, you know this weekend coming uh, and that, that, so that's a chance to see it uh, on a big screen in Lunenburg. But uh, you know, it'll be available on various uh, platforms and CBC Gem and that kind of thing, um, and the Documentary Channel and so on. And and it's just it's told in a very straight ahead manner. Bernie Langell himself, um, not the grandfather, but the, the grandson who shares his name, is a very engaging personality as he tells us about his explorations and his discoveries. And uh, and and it, it, you really feel for the guy as he as he kind of learns all these things about his family that he never knew, and it's uh, it kind of makes you think about your own family connections and the stuff you never get to learn from your own uh, mm. parents and grandparents. And so there's, there's a lot of layers to it. It's not just an unsolved mystery. It's uh, it's uh, it's got a lot more going on for it. And and uh, Jackie does a great job working with Bernie Langell on the story. Jackie's amazing. She's a real force of nature. I've worked with her at the CBC, and uh, and she's been a long time. She's been making documentaries and I remember the short that this is you know the original short that this is based on so so yeah I, I am looking forward to seeing this when I get a chance um, so anything else Stephen that you wanted to uh, highlight from your uh, your film festival journey thus far yeah there's a film called Ennis Men by uh, Cornish filmmaker John, uh, Mark Jenkin he made a film called Bait a couple of years ago, I think that was uh, was a big uh, sensation. It was oh yeah, we watched that at uh, at Carbon Arc too. It was uh, it was really something. Yeah, and you know he he goes for kind of an old timey sort of look and manner of storytelling, and that happens here too. Uh, it looks like it was shot on sixteen millimeter film. I think it probably was because I it just looks so there's so much grain, but also vivid color at the same time. And it was a real delight to see this uh, story of a, of a woman who's um, on this island off the Cornish coast. And her whole day is spent monitoring the growth of these strange flowers uh, that that are only found in this one particular spot. And she lives in this 
remote little cabin and she goes out in her gumboots and her red slicker to go to, onto the coast and measure the temperature of the soil where these flowers are growing and monitor them. And, and then, uh, you know, she's kind of cut off. I mean, it has kind of a lighthouse vibe in a way, but instead of being this stark black and white, it's this um, Kodachrome 16 millimeter grainy color, you know, capturing the beautiful Cornish seacoast. And then it, uh, you know, it just, uh, she starts to have these kind of hallucinations and the, the, the solitude kind of gets to her. And uh, I feel like I'm, I'll, I'll need to see it again, really, to get the full um, full kind of uh, impact of the film. And then uh, you know, as, she, as she kind of has these elements of her life intertwined with the solitude that she's undergoing. But it's, 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 it's a unique film. I don't know when there'll be another chance to see it in the theater, which is a shame. Uh, I have a feeling it's something I'll have to track down online. Um, on a streaming service of some sort. Okay, well, I mean, I'll I'll keep it in mind in the back of my pocket for potential uh, suggestion and programming at Carbon Arc. Because yeah, I having think, watched his previous film, I, I think our audience would be up for for seeing that too. I think it'd be a perfect uh, Carbon Arc uh, title for sure, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I feel like it does benefit from the big screen just because of the scenery and the coastline. Uh, it it does get a bit repetitive. It's it's. You know, the, as before things really take off uh, partway through, but uh, but it, it rewards you when you stick with it and with the uh, with the woman's kind of journey, as mm. it were, into the center of her mind. So, aside from Ennis Men, any other films you want to mention? Yeah, well, I saw the Young Ar- Arsonists, uh, written and directed by Sheila Pye, uh, which was an interesting sort of coming of age. Uh, gone wrong sort of story about four young women set in the I guess in the, I guess in the 1980s it's it has this kind of retro feel and they they basically um, these four young women uh, find this uh, deserted farmhouse that uh, used to belong to one of their families and it's uh, now being slated for demolition as this uh, mysterious company is starting to develop land in this uh, farming community on the prairies and they go a little bit kind of feral in a way it's comes like a like a female lord of the flies in a way uh and uh you know I, I i didn't like it as much as i thought i was going to based on what i'd read about it and what i'd seen but there's some very strong performances by the young actors and it is kind of interesting about how it sort of shows coming of age in this sort of more repressed and and um you know, the kind of breaking out of the their shell kind of way after growing up in this remote prairie town and wondering what their future is going to be. Uh, and is is there even a future in a small town? And all the girls are dealing with various traumas that, that kind of come to a head over the course of the film. Uh, some of it has this kind of stereotypical kind of rural indie film kind of vibe about it that I feel like it, it should have been maybe kicked up a notch with a few more surprises along the way. But again, for the strong performances, it's a beautiful looking film. It's very well made. And it, you know, the storyline is reasonably compelling. It's worth, it's worth tracking down if you, if you get a chance to see that. And uh, I guess the, the last one on the list would be the Buffy St. Marie uh, documentary, carry it on, which will be, um, it'll be on, um, Oh, it'll be on APTN, the uh, indigenous network in Canada. And uh, I imagine it'll show up on perhaps on CBC and the CBC streaming service. And it's also going to be on American Luna, Masters. And the Lunenburg Doc Fest, which you mentioned earlier. Well, that's right. Also, they're yes, going to show it as well. They're showing it as well yeah. this, this coming yeah. weekend. So there are other chances to see it. Uh, Buffy St. Marie is a real force of nature. Uh, and uh, this film manages to capture that in so many different ways. It is, you know, it is an American Masters you know, kind of documentary, but it was nice to see it on a big screen to have the music kind of played loud and, and um, you know, hear hear that 
those those wonderful songs kind of played uh, on the on the sound system and did to, to see the all the archive footage of her from the 1960s when she was starting out in Greenwich Village and you know hear about her you know fairly traumatic childhood uh, you know she was born on a, a Cree nation uh, in Saskatchewan but then adopted by I think a missionary family living in Maine and she had an abusive older brother uh, or you know adopted older brother. And uh, she had a pretty tough time of it until she left home and then discovered music and then went to New York. And, and um, you know, things started happening uh, in terms of the, the folk scene and getting signed to Vanguard Records, which was a big deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, the FBI tries to bring everything to a halt because she's been supporting the American Indian movement in the late 60s and early 70s. And the way she fights back and, you know, finds new innovative ways to express herself. It's all very inspiring. And she's, she's terrific. She has such a great sense of humor about it all, even when describing some of the traumatic aspects of her childhood and her, her marriage to Jack Nietzsche, which uh, turns out to be a lot darker than a lot of people knew and uh, a lot more abusive. And, And she's been through a lot and she's still, she's still a warrior. She's still going and inspiring people from all backgrounds. uh, And, uh, and, putting all of her energy back into programs that, that uh, educate First Nations people, whether they're just, you know, going on to secondary education or becoming involved in the arts. And she's an, an incredible inspiration. And I felt that this did a great job of balancing all the different aspects of her life, which are pretty mind-blowing how much she's achieved over the course of her, uh, you know, 60-odd year career. <laughs> Welcome back to Lens Be Your Ears, and right now, Karsten and I are going to talk about some films that we've both seen, which have been playing at uh, this week's um, Atlantic International Film Festival, uh, and some of which he saw at TIFF in Toronto, and some of which I've seen here, and some of which uh, we've both seen here in Halifax, so it's it's kind of a mishmash. It's always interesting how the two uh, events kind of intertwine and, and share some features and, and have things that are unique to each event, and... Um, Let's start with a, a film shot here in Halifax, one that both of us have been anticipating for a long time uh, since getting a lot of stories about its production directly from the set, and that's Tara Thorne's Compulsus, which uh, it played on Saturday night here in um, here in Halifax. And uh, it's it's a really gripping tale, a micro-budget story, but with, uh, with really big, bold visuals and uh, a, a really propulsive story about about uh, Wally played by Leslie Smith who uh, you know she's a poet uh, she's embarking on a new relationship with a with a woman um, named Lou played by Kathleen Dorian and uh, through conversation with her friends uh, you know they're they're sharing these stories of, of women who've uh, received um, you know foul treatment at the hands of men and not just you know getting dumped or or getting ghosted or whatever, but but men, you know, how many stories they've heard of of, of men who are abusive, who have, um, you know, pushed things too far in, in um, you know, in the early days of relationships have been sexually abusive. They 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 make sort of acknowledgement of real life uh, cases that uh, you may have heard of, like that radio host yes, that everyone yes, knows that about, everyone knows and, about, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And and uh, and and Leslie. Um, or Wally rather uh, decides that she's had enough, and uh, she uh, she just impulsively attacks uh, a chef who is um, you know plays on his status as kind of like a, a hipster food genius to kind of attract women and then uh, abuse them uh, behind closed doors, and and you know the the 
all of a sudden, you know, she becomes kind of a folk hero as as this woman who's um, putting up posters looking for stories about bad men who've been abusive and and uh, uh, and and you know become part of the of rape culture and uh, and and does this kind of vigilante movement to um, to to end this kind of behavior. And then Lou is kind of on the fence about it. Uh, she doesn't know how she feels about her partner being involved in in such a violent and dangerous activity but at the same time uh, you know the lack of of justice the lack of retribution for this kind of behavior the fact that uh, women are either afraid to come forward or when they do they're not believed or the cases kind of get ground down in the courts or don't even make it to the courts and and it's just that kind of frustration bubbling to the surface and and um, overflowing in violence and it's it it's it's basically taking the whole idea of the revenge movie and turning it on its head it, it always revenge movies always seem to be about macho dudes getting you know exacting their their revenge and and uh, and everybody seems fine with it it seems to be a part of pop culture that that uh you know you cheer on the hero or whatever uh and uh, this is designed to make us you know feel a little uncomfortable about it all and and uh make us think about what's happening in our own community and to people that we know and love and and i I feel like it does an amazing job on all counts oh my gosh yeah now i should say full disclosure i've known tara many years since i was a freelancer and then editor at the coast where we both worked so i mean if i'm going to review her film uh it's you know take it with a grain of salt i'm i'm a supporter of tara uh you know certainly uh but i i was so impressed with how well this film came across if there's any justice in the world which unfortunately as this film shows there you know it's in the wish fulfillment of of cinema there is but in real life well who knows but um yeah she should be getting a larger budget to do more stories like this because she clearly has a knack for it this film is full of intensity and rage uh but it's also a love story and it's also very funny like it's there's a lot of wit here that i really appreciated um and it's gonna stoke the conversation around what's appropriate and ethical but it also shows that, you know, people, women feel powerless uh, commonly on the streets of their city or in relationships with men. And this gets to the core of that. Um, and I, I really like that Thorne chose a Thorne, like like she's the <laughs> filmmaker, Tara. <laughs> she, she chose to cast all the men in the movie with a single actor, um, which, you know, but denies them any sort of close up. So it gives this sort of monolithic element where they're all all these guys are wearing the same thing they're all saying basically the same thing they're all doing the same thing it's it's a really interesting technique which i i I appreciated uh it reminded me a little bit of alex garland's men but i think it's actually i think tara does it better because men had some issues that i i i don't think it quite overcame yeah i think it's definitely a more powerful film than than men which i did enjoy Mm. but i feel like here everything is more on point and uh and more direct and uh you know and the characters are 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 more, uh, you know, believable and you warm to them more quickly and, and uh, you know, it just feels more more real, I guess. Yeah, yeah and, and Sue Goyette's poetry in the film giving Wally's, you know, pain and anger real depth, I really thought that was well used. Um, and, you know, I wish, I wish Tara had submitted this film to TIFF because I thought it was better than some of the movies I saw there. <laughs> um, and, you know, interestingly how... This movie is playing here. So is Women Talking, Sarah Pauly's new film, which I saw at TIFF, and uh, Kumbi's first feature, Bystanders. They're all Women Talking and Bystanders, both showing on Thursday at AIFF 
And they're, these are all films that are part of a, a Me Too trend in filmmaking. And I think it's really good to see these issues debated and discussed in these feature films, especially now that there is a genuine backlash to Me Too uh, in the culture. So, I mean, there's a lot of tension going on in these stories. And I think, I think, I think anyone who has a chance should see any of these movies. Yeah, these issues are, are far from resolved. I, I think uh, Compulsus was in Inside Out. I mean, oh, maybe that's, that's right. why it wasn't in, in TIFF, but yeah. it, it should have been. Yeah, For sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's talk about some other movies we've watched. Uh, Triangle of Sadness, written and directed by Ruben Ostland, who uh, who made a film a few years ago called The Square, which was a favorite of mine the year it came out. And it won the Palme d'Or, and so did this. Um, now, I really like Triangle of Sadness. I don't know that it's quite as sharp as The Square, but it is another uproarious class comedy. And this time it's making fun of rich people in a way that I just, I think everyone, most people will enjoy. Um, it sort of starts in the fashion word world with a couple who are bickering, not getting along. They're both fashion models and they're both, you know, talking about money and status and, you know, they're having issues. Uh, and they end up on a cruise, a, a yacht cruise with a group of, of very wealthy people. And things go badly one night on the cruise with a storm combined with bad fish. And uh, you get a farcical midsection of this film uh, with a lot of bodily fluids and a lot of, uh, of sort of uh, post-apocalyptic energy. And then there's a third act, which I'm not going to spoil, but uh, it is it is so funny. I, I found it incredibly satisfying as a sort of metaphor for late capitalism. Um, but it has a lot on its mind, and uh, it, it really go when you see that get a chance to see this film. Go with um, you know someone who you like to have a conversation with about <laughs> yes. about issues, social issues, and and economics, uh, and and see what they have to say after they've seen it. Well, it certainly does fit in, kind of tongue and groove really well with with the square like it just seems like a really great follow-up to mm-hmm. that film and that it, it follows on themes that uh, he discussed in that film um you know a, a, about privilege and so on and he's just sort of looking at it from an even more extreme angle here so i find that the the carryover from one film to the next is really strong uh i'm probably i feel like the square probably was a lot more focused um than this film maybe because of the, the fact that it you know, it's made, it had a one central character that you kind of were drawn to yeah. that everything and in, in happens the, to. In the art world, too. Exactly, well. yeah. Whereas whereas here, it's kind of more of an ensemble thing. There is the couple, the models, um, who were introduced to in the first act of the film and then become part of the ensemble in the, the second part on the cruise ship. Uh, and so it's 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 not necessarily as focused as as the square was, but, uh, but it is... Uh, amazing getting to know these characters and for better or for worse because some of them are intensely unlikable and 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 then when everything gets uh, turned on its head for act three uh seeing how they they interact and relate when uh, when things uh, are drastically changed uh, and they're in a situation that uh, they're not prepared for and mm-hmm. anyway and again i don't want to say too much about that either but uh but it was it was a a really great ride and with some some real strong ideas and uh, and and verve. Yeah, so. yeah. Triangle of Sadness again. Not sure about the release. I, it might be a streamer this time. Uh, but uh, either way, um, you know, look for it when you get an opportunity. Um, uh, yeah. So a couple of others uh, that we could mention in passing, at least. Uh, the new Hirokazu Koreeda film. This is a Japanese filmmaker who won awards for his film Shoplifters. Um, and this is his new film called Broker. Now, 
I was one of the few who was not a huge fan of shoplifters. I find it a bit too long and dramatically uh, delicate. I found this one just as much of a challenge, if not more so. Uh, this one is actually set in Korea, and the, this Japanese filmmaker is telling a story um, about uh, two guys trafficking abandoned babies, uh, Parasite Song Kang-ho and Dong Won Gang, and uh, they team up with one of the mothers of one of these uh, babies, a newborn, and um, you know, they all look to have a good payday selling this kid on the black market, which all sounds like something that you would see in a noir or, you know, some kind of, of, of dark, very dark thriller. But this is not that. It's, a, it's sort of a drama, comedy drama about a, a, a strange family on the road and uh, and you know there are so a lot of charm with these these characters it is very much a shaggy dog story but um, I just found it all I found a lot of the characters very sweet there's there's not much conflict and uh, I just didn't find that there was enough stakes for me to really I didn't really get into it I don't what did you think Stephen yeah I definitely liked it a lot more than you maybe just because I like these characters and watching this kind of unusual family form on the road while they're trying to sell a baby, which is just a bizarre concept. I guess Koreeda um, was initially going to make this film in Japan, and then he found out that this whole concept of the baby box where, uh, you know, a mother who can't take care of her child leaves it in these kind of comforting boxes that uh, where uh, some sort of charity society, a church or or something else, uh, some other group uh, will take care of the baby. And then he finds out that this thing he discovered in Japan is actually more widespread in Korea, which is why he said it there instead of his native Japan. But uh, the, uh, yeah, I mean, it's we've got the great Song Kang-ho, who I've just been a fan of ever since, well, since I saw him in The Host, but uh, then more recently, just in a lot more Korean features. And, you know, he, pl- he plays a guy who's trying to convince himself that he means well, that he's finding a home for these babies with parents who, you know, actively want to love him, love the love the children. But, you know, it does feel a little bit greasy, this oh, whole yeah. idea. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of res- wrestling with this moral conundrum. And I liked, uh, I liked uh, Don Juan Gang's character, Dong Su, who, you know, we learned more about his background, that he was an abandoned child, abandoned in an orphanage as an infant as well. And he's, he's got some issues that he's working through as he's trying to help find homes for these, uh, for these babies as well. And, and, um, you know, I, I like the unconventional relationship they form with the mother who, who, um, basically, you know, she's, she comes back for the child and figures out what's going on and wants her piece of the action too, which, Mm -hmm. you know, so she's got uh, some conflicting, uh, ethics and feelings as well. I I just found the the characters were interesting enough to carry it through. I, 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 it doesn't quite stick the landing, I don't think, in in terms of wrapping everything up and resolving everything. But uh, and I also liked the cops. I, I liked um, Bay Duna um, plays Sujin, one of the police officers, and most people might know her from uh, Sense Eight, the, mm. ne- the Netflix series from the Wachowskis, and uh, she was also in um, Cloud Atlas, playing multiple roles. But she's she's a fascinating actor, and she plays this very reserved cop who, you know, is just kind of driven by her job, even though she's got this loving husband who does everything for her she's stuck in this car following these guys who are trying to sell this baby and every time they try to bust them it doesn't quite go as planned so anyway it's it is a bit of a shaggy dog story it doesn't necessarily hang together well all the way through but i did like uh i did like the actors and their personas and and you know, following them around Korea with this with this infant. Yeah, and I, I think if anything that this podcast has proven to us, Stephen, is you have a lot more patience with Shaggy Dog stories. It's than very I do. true. It's um, very true. And I mean, here we've got 
there, it just looks, it's almost going to turn into a thriller, this film, because there are gangsters who want to, to, to get this baby and, and have their own agenda, and nothing ever comes yeah, that, of that. that. It's is, completely that is forgotten. That is the loose end that's never picked up. Yeah, and it's re- I found it really frustrating, because I'm like, okay, here's someone who is genuinely dangerous, who's going to raise the stakes for these characters, and it just amounts to nothing. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> yeah, frustrating. Um, but anyway, uh, let's move on to a last movie, and we're just going to mention in passing, Decision to Leave. I think maybe because we both were mixed on that. Um, Maybe because we had such high hopes. Uh, yeah, and that's because it's directed by uh, Park Chan-wook, who is this Korean filmmaker whose last film, The Handmaiden, was extraordinary. This new one is a sort of a goofy noir about a dog detective um, played by Park Hae-il, uh, and he's a, also a married man who falls in love with a woman played by Tang Wei who may have murdered her husband. Uh, the film is told in kind of two parts, and it's full of, you know, impressive sort of labyrinthine plot and character notes. A lot of uh, of interesting hidden motivations get revealed through the picture's running time. I'm not saying it's not entertaining. I think it is, but it's just, there were just such tonal issues that I really kind of found frustrating and a, and a humor that I didn't find funny. I just found kind of irritating. So, I, yeah, I've really, and a lot of sentimentality that I could take or leave. So, yeah, I, I, I felt, um, and again, talking about not sticking the landing, I thought that the sort of there's a tragedy in the conclusion which felt really overwrought. Yeah, it's weird. The, a lot of the things that I love, I mean, you know, he made the Vengeance trilogy, Old Boy and Lady Vengeance and Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, uh, and, and, and of course Handmaid. And those films all had kind of like a transgressive, edgy, you know, edge of your seat uh, and surprising nature about them. And I found that, most of that was missing from this film. So basically the things I liked about his previous films were largely absent here. You've got this this kind of ill-fated romance plus the police procedural. Uh, and, you know, neither of those are, are handled terribly well. Uh, and uh, I, the detective, uh, Hei Jun, played by Park Hae-il, I just he just seems like such a sad sack and such a bad detective <laughs> that, uh, you know, you're surprised that he's like, so dogged, you know, to, to, to solve this case when he just knows it's going to be kind of the ruin of, of himself and nobody else seems to care. And he's such a kind of malfunctioning policeman in the first place. You kind of wonder why he's doing, you know, what he's doing. And so, you know, so the, the love affair is bungled, the, the case is bungled and, uh, none of it, uh, none of it. I really seem to care about too much by the end of it all. Yeah, I sort of felt similarly to you. Uh, and again, it's very long. <laughs> I, that's one thing. Uh, having gone to a film festival where I saw like twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two movies in in eight days, I really did appreciate the uh, the concise features uh, after a while. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. All right, on this final 
segment of Lends Me Your Ears, we're going to talk more about movies, because that's what we're doing. We're talking about movies at the film festivals, and stuff that I've seen, and stuff we've both seen. We're just going to fill the time with <laughs> however many we can squeeze in here. Um, a lot of films to talk about. Yeah, and I want to, uh, to just tip my hat to my favorite film from TIFF this year, which was One Fine Morning, a.k.a. Un Beau Matin, written and directed by Mia Hansen-Love, whose work, uh, films I've known before, Things to Come with Isabelle Huppert, and most recent, the Swedish set Bergman Island. But I was unprepared for how much I really loved this new picture. It's unabashedly French, set in Paris, story of a modern woman uh, and single mother, Sandra, played by Leah Sedou, of course, who... Uh, who we all know from recently, from the James Bond, last two James Bond movies. Uh, she is amazing in this film, and we're in, in a total sort of Gene Seberg haircut that uh, I'm I'm sure is a is a, a nod to that uh, you know iconic look. Um, she has a love affair with an old friend, a friend of her ex's, uh, played by Melville Poupaud. And uh, complicating matters is the fact that the new man is married and has a young kid of his own. Um, this is while Sandra is trying to find a care for her father, Pascal Gregory, who's a former philosophy professor, and he suffers from a neuro neurodegenerative disease. So, yeah, there's a lot going on, but it's really just a slice-of-life movie. And uh, it's about love and trying to make the best of things while you're here. And it's, uh, it's you know, it's, it's uh, I, found it, I found myself totally drawn into the film and completely engaged in all the characters' wants and needs and the themes of fidelity and mortality and self-sufficiency while you're living in a huge city. Um, it ends a little sentimentally, but you know what? I didn't care because I so enjoyed spending time with these characters' lives. This is a wonderful film. And I guess if you're listening to the show on Tuesday, September 20th, you can see it at uh, the Atlantic International Film Fest. Uh, I'm probably going to the David Bowie Moon Age Daydream <laughs> film in IMAX, so I have a feeling I'm not going to be able to catch it uh, here at Finn. But it um, it does come out, I guess, in early October, so okay. keep, keep an eye out for One Fine Morning. Yeah, let's hope we get to see it here in cinemas uh, here in Halifax. Um, so, uh, yeah, I also want to give a nod to Queens of the Jing Dynasty. This is written and directed by Ashley McKenzie, Cape Breton filmmaker who made a big splash with her first feature film, Werewolf, which was about uh, these, you know, it was a story of addiction and about uh, a couple hanging on to each other in really tough times. Um she loves the small details of characters and their bodies, and she she explores that as well as expanding on her palette with uh, this story of uh, a teenage girl who is uh, a, suic a suicide attempt. She's in a hospital ward, which is windowless. It's very claustrophobic, and she's assigned a, a student, a, a volunteer, a, ch a Chinese student who's sort of there to care for her and look in on her. And that's the key relationship in the film between the caregiver and the caregiven. Um, and it's about their ongoing friendship. They explore all sorts of commonalities, and we learn stories of Chinese myth, and there's trans narratives and immigrant narratives. It's it's and it's about finding someone, connecting with someone, wherein you're both feeling very separate and different from the environment around you. And and I found it to be a lovely, odd, interesting film. You know, it's it's uh, 
we get a lot of very intimate access to these characters. Uh, at one point, there's we the camera goes down into the esophagus of of our <laughs> lead character because she's in the hospital, and we're seeing all the sort of treatment she's getting as she's being being cared for after this suicide attempt. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's startling how intense it is, but it, uh, it it just is another another example of the fact that Mackenzie is is doing things that no one else is doing, and uh, it's great to see it coming from Nova Scotia. Well, I have not had a chance to see this yet. I'm hoping that I do. And, uh, you know, with certainly with Werewolf, she has a way of drawing you into her characters' lives and um, in in all their glory and all their uh, misfortune. And I, I have a feeling that uh, this will do the same on a, on a whole new level. So I yeah. can't wait to see it. It's also here. I think it's playing Wednesday, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's at AIFF this week. So I hope if you hear this and you hear this before Wednesday, then this is something you should consider. Uh, now, Stephen, you've seen one of the films from the film festival that I have not, and that is playing on Thursday. Uh, Thursday is a good night at the fest. I yeah, mentioned no kidding. Maybe a little too good. <laughs> women talking and bystanders. There's a lot happening on, on Thursday. But Lemon Squeezy is, I think, the <laughs> final film at the festival. It's the, yeah, it's the very last film being shown. And it's uh, it's a low budget comedy shot in Halifax uh, by Kevin Hartford, who's who's made a string of of very enjoyable short films, uh, very wry, very funny, um, and uh, and very unique films. And he also uh, did some fun plays at the Halifax Fringe. And here he's uh, he's stepping into the world of feature films. Now he kind of likens this to being like ten short films strung together, but it's a little more detailed than that because all the characters are undergoing the end of the world and it's like this low budget apocalypse where all the plagues are happening off screen and the characters are reacting to all these unusual circumstances that are happening in their lives and uh and it's 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 very inventive in the way that it tells its story and uh the way the characters kind of eventually begin to to interact and and some of them are trying to make money off the apocalypse as it's happening and and others are trying to um make their uh, relationships work in the face of uh, weird events happening. Like, uh, for example, Mark Palermo plays a a, a rat in a human body uh, and uh, who's also a gay rat. And this woman who's dating him is trying to come to terms with all of this stuff. And, uh, and th- there's some fun little kind of weird mini musical moments where characters kind of do these stationary dance moves uh, over the course of the film. Um, because he liked the idea of making a musical that wasn't a musical. Hmm. And uh, and the first time it happens, it's a bit jarring. And as, as other characters do it during the course of the film, it just kind of accentuates the weird events and, and strange behavior that's taking place over the course of the film. And there's just lots of fun dialogue. Um, you know, the, there's the, the mom of, of a, a young teen who thinks that coming out of the closet has given him godlike powers. Meanwhile, she's trying to... Um, I think he's trying to become a stand-up comedian, telling these increasingly more elaborate and unfunny jokes over the course of the film, and their utter lack of humor is what makes them funny, I guess. Mm. Yeah. So it's 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 a fun, quirky character comedy, and it uh, it's it's very breezy and and very North End Halifax, and and I really enjoyed it. All right, well, that's one I will hope to to catch if I can. You know, one other movie that is playing Thursday that was the toast. Well, one of the toasts of TIFF, aside from. Sarah Pauly's uh, Women Talking, which uh, was the runner-up for the People's Choice Award, incidentally, uh, is I Like Movies from oh, Chandler yeah. Levac. Now, uh, I didn't know Chandler Levac's name before I went to TIFF a couple of weeks ago, but um, 
Chandler is in town this week to support this film, and uh, and she's a film reviewer at the Globe, and the film, their film, his her film, I should say, I believe is their pronoun, um, is set in a video store where uh, where a seventeen year old protagonist works uh it's set in the early 2000s so sort of like the the end of the video store age but a lot of people were talking about this film at tiff and uh, i think it got a lot of love and i know that the screening sold out uh so that's saying something you know it's i think it's one of the canadian films that really rose up uh thanks to um to you know the attention it got so there's someone something else to consider for your thursday night here yeah i've been hearing a lot of great things about that film and and Obviously, as as a self-proclaimed movie buff, it feels like it's right up my alley. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to know too much about it because I feel like it, it's going to be full of surprises and moments that uh, are going to uh, delight me <laughs> in, in, in a lot of different ways. So I, I'm kind of trying to hold off on, on reading too much about it, but, but it does seem like a film that's kind of beamed directly in my brain yeah. in a way. Um, I guess we're almost out of time. You and I watched a documentary that I should we should tell people oh, about. Oh, yeah. We saw uh, that on uh, Sunday. Yeah, and it's called All That Breathes, and it's an HBO documentary, so I'd, let's hope it would show up on Crave here I would before think so, too long. Yeah. And it's about, um, it's about a group of brothers in New Delhi uh, who work basically um, as running a wildlife rescue organization, and they care specifically for black kites. These are the raptors who are... Uh, you know, adapted to the city, but who suffer from its bad air and bad water. And people bring them these birds every day, and many of them are, are hurt or or sick, and they try to you know help them. And uh, this with very little resources. You know, it's um, it's it's really something to see how much they care for these animals. But also the way the film is shot, it really shows how the urban environment is, and and animals are you know they're they're adapting to the urban environment no matter how difficult it is um so it's a it's a beautiful film it's also a desperate and uh, a dark film in many ways yeah you you really feel for these animals that are kind of had their habitats taken over by urban landscapes over the years i mean they have kites like we have seagulls maybe even more so and uh they've they've adapted in these amazing ways and and uh i mean after the film i was telling you how i saw kites in australia we're just tossing meat up into the air and they would swoop down and and just catch pieces of meat out of the air. And then they talk about doing the exact same thing in this film, which I, I just thought was uh, was pretty amazing. And uh, and and also, um, of course, uh, my partner Jordana is involved in uh, the Cobequid Wildlife Rehab Center. And I was seeing a lot of the things that they have to deal with on a, on a regular basis mirrored in this film, which is taking place on the exact opposite side of the world and how they have to get funding and, and find space for all these animals and, and the ways they have to kind of expand their facilities and make them more professional and and so on and, and Cobequid has had a similar kind of growth over the years uh, and it just tells you how much of that story is happening in every part of the globe and it's 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 very compelling and and, and very sad but also also kind of hopeful knowing that people are out there caring for these animals <laughs> Closes our look at uh, film festival movies at TIFF and AIFF Finn here in Halifax. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears, and I hope you get out to see some films while you have the opportunity. My name's Karsten Knox, uh, and I can be found on Twitter on uh, Flaw in the Iris, actually, is the name of my blog, 
we're also Stephen. you also have a twitter account i do i'm at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e and lens mirrors is also on facebook if you care to reach out to us and offer suggestions uh you know criticism i don't we'll take some criticism uh or or (laughs) even some support and and uh kind words or suggestions of subjects that we should be talking about here on lens mirrors want to say thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And many thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for all the magic making us sound good. And thank you again for listening to Lens Me Your Ears, and we'll be talking about movies again very soon. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 